Welcome to the legacy teachings of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Church since 1979. Though these teachings are decades old, we invite you to get out your Bible, take notes, and get ready to receive the uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information about Christian Assembly Church, please visit us online at cafamily.net. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, if you would, please, in chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I want, once again, to share with you a little bit about those four spiritual laws that govern man's relationship with God. And I want to emphasize one of those laws that I believe is very important if we want to have a victorious life of faith. There are four spiritual laws that govern our relationship with God. The law of love, which is the royal law. Then there is the law of sin and death. And then there is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And there is the law of faith. These are four spiritual laws that govern man's relationship with God. The law of love reveals to us that our God is love. And His love for mankind is unconditional. It's not based on our performance. It's based on His nature. It is His nature to love. He loves because God is love. Not that He has love, but that He is love. And He is absolute love. We have a hard time dealing with absolutes because we're not as acquainted with absolutes as God is. When the Bible says that God is light, He is absolute light. That means total absence of darkness. Even though the lights are on in this room, there is not absolute light in this room. If there was absolute light in this room, we'd be blinded by that light. Amen. God is love. Everything He does is motivated by love. All the activity of God springs out of love. And even if something doesn't seem right to mankind, it doesn't mean that the motivating force behind it was, wasn't love. It is love and it was love because God is love and God loves mankind unconditionally. It's not based on anything that man does or man did. It's based on the nature of God. Amen. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that in verse 21. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, committed the awful crime of high treason, God, even though He pronounced the curse, which was not because of what God did, but because of what man did. And He didn't do it out of anger. He did it because it was a law. He did it because He is just and righteous, holy and true. He told man if he had sinned, disobeyed or rebelled, He then would set in motion what we know to be the law of sin and death. So man did this. But I want you to see something here. I want you to see what God did in light of what man did. Look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. God was not pleased with what they did, but it didn't stop him from loving them. He still loved them. 
He still cared for them. He still reached out to them. Even though they set in motion this awful law of sin and death, He still loved them, reached out, cared for them, provided for them in light of it all. What does that show us? God is not angry with mankind. God loves humanity. It is His nature to love. But He must be just and He must abide by His own laws. He can't violate His own laws because He is a God of law. He's not going to violate Himself. Man fell short, not God. So God shows His love. He reveals His love and loves us unconditionally. Now, when it came to even the Israelites, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, He said, I have done all these things for you because I love you. It wasn't because they were the greatest nation. It wasn't because they were uh, uh, more than any other people upon the earth. God loved them and kept His promise or kept His word because of His love. His love was at work in the earth. He wanted to deal with a people to let those people know how much He loved them and how much He loved all the world, how much He loved all mankind. And so God our Heavenly Father is a God of love. He abides by the law of love. Love is the greatest and the highest law anyone can live by or, or we can be governed by, and God is love. And that's the bottom line. He's going to have an eternal society based on love. Now, we can talk about that for a long time, but we're not going to do that because we've got to get to something else. The law of sin and death was the law set in motion when man rebelled against God. That law explains why there are catastrophes, why there are calamities, why there are tragedies, why there are adversities, why there are circumstances, why there are tribulations, why there are trials, why things happen here in the earth that go against the plan and program of God. The things that happen, seemingly, if you look at it through the eyes of human perspective, dictate to us that God is not in control, that God is not at work, or He is an awful God, causing cancers to come upon people's bodies, destroying children's minds, causing all kinds of difficulties that take place in life, wars. He's the source of the problem, and none of that is true. That is not God. We face all these struggles, all these emotional upheavals, all these difficulties that we encounter in the realm of human life because of what Adam and Eve did in setting in motion the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death is a law that God Himself has got to honor. When that took place, Adam became the God of this world and man became the offspring of Satan himself. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 8, if you would, please. Jesus, in this particular passage of Scripture, is speaking to the Jewish people, and in particular, the Pharisees, the most strict or the strictest religious sect of the day. He's not talking to heathen. He is not speaking to people that are out there living their lives the way they want to live with reckless abandon. He is talking to people who are trying to observe the laws of God, 
who supposedly are well-versed and well-schooled and well-taught in religion and the law of Moses and who represent, as I said, the strictest religious organization of the day. And here's what he says to them in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. Think about that. He's not talking to somebody out there on the street. He's talking to these religious leaders and says, You are of your father, the devil. See, that is the problem with mankind. When Adam set in motion the law of sin and death, man became the offspring of Satan. He took upon his nature of darkness. You are of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. It is in man's nature to lie because his father is a liar. When a person gets saved, the first thing he is convicted of is telling those white lies. Just can't lie anymore. Why? Well, I've been born again. I'm in the family of God. I'm in the light. Don't want to lie. But before, it's nothing to tell a white lie. You say, well, I'm not convicted today. Well, something's wrong with your spirit. Your conscience has been seared as with a hot iron if you can lie and, and, and have no remorse. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, that's verified in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul said, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. He is saying there that when man fell, the nature of wrath came upon him. He partook of the nature of Satan himself. He became the, the father, you could say the stepfather, illegally, of mankind. He became the prince of the power of the air and the authority that Adam had, he gave over to Satan. And now the world's in a mess. Now there are problems everywhere you look and everywhere you go. There's upheaval in all people's lives. That's all because of the fall. As a matter of fact, look at Galatians. If you're in your New Testament there, look at the book of Galatians. I want you to see this verse. It's very important. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. The world that we are living in, according to Jesus, is an evil age. Look at verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father, the Father from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil world or age Jesus gave himself for us why to deliver mankind from this present evil age notice according to the will of God and our father did you hear that this entire age is evil this is not the will of God being done on earth that's why I said pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven God's will is not being done and when I hear people talk about how, oh, God did this and God did that and God's caused this and God causing that, I have no idea where they're coming from. They've never read the Bible, apparently. 
Satan is the God of this world. He is the author of sin, the author of sickness, the author of death, the author of tragedy, calamity, trials, tribulations, persecutions, and everything that comes against us in life. He is behind, directly or indirectly. He's behind it all. That's our enemy. That's our problem out there. And we need to recognize that God is not having His will done on earth as it is in heaven. And people right now are subject to the powers of darkness. And it's His will that we all be delivered from this present evil age. So the law of sin and death is the reason why babies are born deformed. It's the reason why cancers attach themselves to bodies. It's the reason why there are people who have lost their mental faculties and have their, an inability to even think or function well in society. It's the reason why murderers kill people, robbers steal from people, liars lie, cheaters cheat. It's the reason behind infidelity, immorality, witchcraft, Satanism, and we can go on and on and on and on and name all the evils of this age, and it's all because of the powers of darkness that Adam opened up the door to. And the person out there who doesn't think he needs delivered from this present evil age is in a sorry state. There is nothing in this world that is this known world right now that we should desire so much that we turn our back on God. Nothing. Somebody say amen. amen. There's nothing that's worth it. It's but for a split second. And then you're thrust into eternity. And if you go there without God, you're in the worst state you could ever be in. It's God's will that we be delivered from this present evil age. And of course, how? Through Christ. And that brings us to our third law. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You're close by, so go back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. And we're talking about laws here. In 8-2, we have to understand that, that Paul in 8, or I'm sorry, in chapter 7 is talking about how that while under the law, the law that was at work in his members prevented him from pleasing God, doing the will of God. Fulfilling the will of God. It was warring against his members. Making him think wrong. Making him act wrong. He wasn't pleased with himself. Anybody out there understand what he's talking about? Not pleased with my actions. It seems like there is something lurking in my members that is preventing me from doing what I should be doing. And something that's pushing me to do something I shouldn't be doing. Can you identify with that? As a matter of fact, before I read this law, look at, look at um, some of these verses in chapter 7. Chapter 7. And verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For, had I, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. 
So the law was designed to reveal my sinful state. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive with the law once, without the law once, but when the commandment came out, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Can you identify with what he's saying? Yeah. Now, if I do that, what I, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find that a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see his cry, you see his plea. He said, this is an awful state to be in. I don't want to be like this. So who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? And if you go back to the time that he's writing this, a punishment that was handed down to those that committed murder in some places was they would take the dead body of the individual and rope, put rope around the person who was alive who committed the murder and face to face you'd have a corpse. Looking you eyeball to eyeball. Anybody like that? Think about that. And it would begin to decay and contaminate you and you'd die too. Think about that. Roped together face to face to a dead man. Doesn't sound too inviting, does it? But listen to this. Know what he's saying? This flesh is like a dead man. And our spirit is roped to it. Connected together in such a way that if I live by the law of my flesh that's been schooled to sin, I'm going to die. If I sow to the flesh of the flesh, I'll reap corruption. Who's going to deliver me, he is saying, from the power of death that lurks in the members of my body that has been schooled to act like the nature that was once in me? Who's going to deliver me? Well, thank God. Look at the next verse. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind... I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus liberates me from the law of sin and death. 
There is a power of God on the inside. When a man is born again, there is a nature of God, there is the life of God, there is the love of God, there is the ability of God, and that power liberates one. It's like removing that corpse that was once dead. But all of a sudden, there's life in me, in my spirit. I'm alive unto God, and the power inside me, the inner man, the man on the inside, liberates me from all the powers of death. And they're working among my members. And you see, that's this law of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that makes us free. Now, what I want us to do, because this is the, the main thrust of, of my message tonight, I want us to begin to see something about this law of life. It involves the present-day ministry of Jesus Christ right now in our lives. It's what's going to really enable us to live a victorious life of faith. You see, we just can't preach faith's principles and expect people to live victoriously by faith. Why? Because it's not enough. You just can't preach the principles of faith without the foundational message that produces faith. If you detach the principles from the message that produces and the foundation that supports it, You've got people going off just saying aimless confessions of faith that really are meaningless and amount to nothing. But when you give the foundational message, then you've got something to support a life of faith that will be victorious and that will conquer in this life. And that's why these next statements are absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, essential to a productive, successful, victorious life of faith. And in, I know some people view things like these studies being boring. Let me tell you something right now. That's the devil making people think that, oh, this is boring. I want to hear something exciting. If this doesn't excite you, something is wrong. Because this is the foundation of it all. This is what you need to be victorious. So everybody, give me your undivided attention and let's listen to these important truths from the Word of God. There are three views three views as far as the ministry of Jesus concerning us is concerned. There are three important views of the ministry of Jesus that we all have got to be aware of. And the first view is Jesus before the cross. See, if I want to have a productive faith life, well, I have the formula given to me already in Revelation 12:11. It says, They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb... And the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb represents all that Jesus did for us in redemption. It signifies the completeness of our redemption in Christ. That's what it signifies. The word of our testimony signifies the means by which we appropriate all that Jesus did for us. So you can't detach them from each other and expect to be successful. We overcome by the blood that signifies all that Jesus did for us in the completeness of our redemption and the word of faith or the word of our testimony which signifies the means by which we appropriate something that Jesus did for us. That's the message and that's the method. The message is what Jesus did to redeem us. The method is the appropriation of our faith. Okay, number one. What Jesus did for us before the cross. And to understand that, we go to the very beginning. Before the cross, Jesus made a decision to leave the glory world. 
Jesus made a decision to come to the earth and robe Himself with flesh. He made a decision to forever leave that state He was in there in glory and take on a new position. We call it an incarnation, which is indeed a union of humanity with deity forever. I want you to understand this. Before He did that, He was deity alone. But when He made that decision, He became the union of deity and humanity. It's often called, in, in, in theological terms, the hypostatic union, the union of deity with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. We call it the incarnation. When He left that glory world, He knew what He was doing. He was becoming every much a man as you and I are. Do you hear that? That's called humbling himself. We could say he walked lowly, humble, before God, becoming a man, becoming a part of his own creation. I must recognize that before the cross, somebody gave up all that to come to the earth for me. He did it for me. You talk about love in action. He did it for me. While I was yet a sinner... While I was yet bound by sin and under its penalty, He loved me so much He left the glory world to come to this earth, become a part of His creation, take on human flesh, and in this miraculous hypostatic union, become one with me and one with you. He chose to do that as an act of His will. He walked upon this earth representing the second Adam. He was the second Adam. The first Adam failed. He came to do successfully what the first Adam failed to do. He came as a man to say, look, man can obey God. Man can serve God. Man can submit to God. Man can give up his will to do the will of God. And he was the will of God in motion on this earth. He came to show humanity that indeed God did give the first Adam authority and power in all that God had made. And when He walked upon this earth, there was nothing that was too difficult for Him to do. If there was a storm, He spoke to it. If there was a dead person, He raised Him from the dead. He was anointed with the Holy Ghost and power and lived like no man ever lived, spoke like no man ever spoke. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Whatever it was that He had to do, He would do it. And He showed that man had authority upon this earth. He was obedient to do His Father's will. That's the life of Christ before the cross. But secondly, the life of Christ also, or the ministry of Christ, includes His dying on the cross. And on the cross, we see Him being made sin for us. On the cross, we see Him becoming the curse for us. On the cross... We see Him partaking of the full wrath of God. On the cross, we see the Father placing on Him the iniquity of us all. We see Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, made sick with our mental anguish, our torment. We see Him on that cross taking upon Himself everything that we should have taken because of the violation of Adam from the very beginning. So we see Christ in His ministry on the cross, forsaken of God Himself. Those are two views of the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He did it as our substitute. But that's not enough. See, we know about that. Sometimes I think we ignore or neglect the present-day ministry of Jesus Christ. The third view is beyond the cross or after the cross. 
What do you mean after the cross? After the cross. Beloved, he's off the cross. Beloved, the tomb is empty. Beloved, he arose from the dead. Beloved, he is at the Father's right hand. He defeated sin. He's Satan, sin, sickness, disease. He defeated all the powers of darkness. He paid the penalty. He satisfied the claims of justice that were being held against mankind. He arose from the dead. He sat down at the Father's right hand in the highest position in the universe with all power and authority in all three worlds. But let's not stop there. See, people think that because he sat down, he's done. No, 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 no. He is not done. He has not done. He has not finished what he's doing. There is a present day ministry of Jesus Christ right now, beloved, that every single one of us needs to be familiar with if we are going to live a successful, victorious life upon this earth. And it, it includes these things. There are five, at least five, five things that really identify the ministry of Jesus Christ right now in the year. Number one, he is right now alive at the Father's right hand as the only mediator between God and man. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, if you would please, in chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. The ministry of our Lord has not ended. He's off the cross. The tomb is empty. He is our risen Lord. He is in the highest seat in all the universe. And He is there, not just sitting down, drinking coffee. He's not kicked back his himself in his easy recliner just sitting back there saying well I'm done what I had to do and that's all there is to it I'm just going to sit back and you know just maybe catch a few hours of my favorite show and, and maybe watch the angels, angels fool around for a while and whatever they do up there no that's not what he's doing up there at the father's right hand beloved he's there making a way for you he's there making a way for me and we're going to learn how to really tap into what Jesus is doing Number one, he is the only mediator. Look at chapter 8, verse 6, Hebrews. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, covenant, which was established upon better promises. A mediator is one who mediates between parties that are at variance. Someone calls in a mediator to negotiate so we can get to terms of agreement. Well, beloved, Jesus is the only bona fide, qualified mediator between a holy God and a sinful man. He bridges the gap, and what he does, he represents man to God and God to man. And because of the life and ongoing ministry of his being our mediator, Anyone who is alive on planet Earth can now approach God through Jesus and say, I want to be born again. I want to be saved. I want to have a brand new life. And you know what Jesus does? He takes that person to the Father. Shows him the way. See, he's the only mediator between God and man. And you'll see that. Look, look at uh, 1 Timothy. It's close by. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And the reason why he is the only one qualified to be that mediator is because of who he is and because of what he has done. It's because of who he is and because of what he has done. But look at this verse, verse 5. 
For there is one God and one, everybody say one. One mediator between God and men, the man, or one verse, one translation says, himself man, Christ Jesus. There is only one mediator. An angel can't go to God for you. A saint can't go to God for you. There is no other creature, no other being that ever was or ever will be that can represent us before God but Jesus Christ himself. Why? Number one, he is the perfect union, this qualifies him, between God and man. He is the God-man. How more perfect can you get than that? But number two, it's because of what he has done. Well, what has he done? Colossians chapter 1. If you would, please. What has he done? Verse 21. What has Christ done? Well, in verse 21 it says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in the sight of a holy God. No one else did that. There isn't a saint on the other side in glory. There isn't a being on the other side in glory. There isn't a being in heaven, a being on earth, a being beneath the earth who qualifies because no one else did that. Jesus, the God-man, the union of deity and humanity, reconciled humanity to God by the offering of His own life, by becoming the propitiation for our sins, by becoming our substitute. He is the only one who qualifies to mediate between holy God and sinful man. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says the Lord, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Amen. That's it. I am the door. You don't get there without me. Amen. He's qualified to say that because of those credentials. Number two, aren't you glad for your mediator? Amen. And he mediates a better covenant. Everybody say better. Amen. Moses was the mediator of the old law, wasn't he? But thank God I don't have a carnal, natural man who is my mediator. I've got Jesus, praise God, who is my mediator. And it's a better covenant. As Hebrews said, established upon better promises. That means everything the Old Testament offered. There's better for us in the new. It includes all the Old Testament offered as far as blessings and, and statements of fact, benefits of God are concerned. And we've got all that and more. It's a better covenant with better promises. Someone says, that was just for the old. My goodness, what Bible are they reading? We've got a better covenant with better promises, with greater glory because of greater blood, a greater sacrifice, a greater mediator, praise God. And secondly, we also have a surety. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, if you would, please. Second ministry of Jesus in present-day ministry includes His being the surety of a better testament. You see, this is going to give you faith, Saint. Saint, I'm telling you tonight, it is going to give you faith to rise up above the devil, the works of the flesh, the influence of this age, and the powers of darkness that surround us. The persecution, the difficulties, whatever it is you encounter in life, this is going to produce a faith that will not fail you. An assurance, a confidence, a boldness about you that will put you over the top in the face of of adversity in the face of temptation and trial and difficulty Hebrews 7:22 says by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament 
A surety means a guarantee or it means one who is legally liable. Did you hear that? He is legally liable to stand behind every word negotiated between himself and the Father to see to it that not one word fails. A surety means he is our ground for security and our ground for confidence. You ready for this? Jesus is at the Father's right hand right now as the guarantee that whatever promise God made you, whatever benefit He offers you, whatever statement of fact He has declared to be true in the Word of God concerning you, He is the surety, the guarantee, the one who stands behind it, fully, legally liable to see to it that the Father watches over that Word to make it good in your life. That's what that's saying. His presence there guarantees you the answer to your prayer. His presence there guarantees you to experience the benefit that God said is yours. He is the surety. Now, in the days of the high priest, if the priest failed in any way in his office of ministry the atoning blood would lose its efficacy. And there would be an interruption in the relationship between the people and God. And you know as well as I do that man is fallible. Whether it's Aaron the high priest or anybody else of the Levitical priesthood, man is fallible, man is imperfect, and man is capable of missing the mark. And I'm sure there were some high priests that fell over dead over there in the presence of God that they had to pull out. What that did was it interrupted their relationship with God. It made the atoning blood lose its efficacy. You got your shouting clothes on? Jesus offered his blood. Jesus placed his blood upon the altar of sacrifice. Jesus is a perfect high priest. He is there to guarantee you there will never, ever, ever, ever in your lifetime or any lifetime of any person to come ever be an interruption between the relationship that God has with man because of a faulty thing that takes place in the life of the high priest. Amen. Never. Hallelujah. That will never occur. Thirdly, his third ministry today, present ministry at the Father's right hand. This all involves the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Look at 1 John chapter 2. He is our advocate. You're close by. 1 John chapter 2. He is our advocate. We could not survive this Christian life without an advocate. There's no possible way. Chapter 2. Verse 1. My little children. 1 John 2, 1. These things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate is one who pleads in favor of another to vindicate. Jesus at the Father's right hand pleads with the Father your case 
in your favor to vindicate you so that I can be vindicated whenever I sin, whenever I do wrong. When we miss the mark and we do wrong and we commit sin, when we go to the Father and say, Father, I confess my sin, I want you to know something. Jesus stands as your advocate. He pleads on your behalf, your case, in your favor. You stand there before God and you say, I've missed the mark, I'm, I'm so guilty. Beloved, when you sin and when I sin, there'll be guilt, there'll be condemnation. And if we stay in the fleshly realm, condemnation will destroy us. Condemnation will come all over us and get us to hang our heads down low. And if you think about it, we'll think that God is mad at us. We'll think He's angry with us. We think He doesn't care about us anymore. We might as well just forget this Christian life because there's no way we're going to please this God that we serve. I can't walk the walk. I can't even talk the talk anymore. And, and that's what goes through a person's mind because of sin. I want you to know something that when you sin, praise God, you have got an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. And all you've got to say is, Father, I did wrong. I'm coming to you. Forgive me. And I want you to know something. When you do, Jesus stands there by the Father's right hand and says, I'm pleading their case. I'm telling you, Father God, I died for them. My blood was shed for them. Don't look at them. Look at me and be happy and be joyful and forgive them. Give them mercy and give them grace. That's what he does. You're not alone. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You'll, you won't drown in your sin. Don't let the devil hoodwink you and think, oh my, this is so rough. This is so tough. I've got to be so perfect. Thank God he's perfect. Thank God that Jesus did what you and I could not do. And so when I go to him, I say, I plead, I, I just, I, Father, I throw myself on your mercy and Jesus takes it up from there. He says, look at me, Father, and wash them by my blood. And the Father says, okay, you're right. You did it for him. And he's our, look at the next verse. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And God's not against the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but the world through him might have life. Number four, he is our intercessor. Romans 8, well, you're close. Since you're close by, I want you to see two verses. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and also Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. What else is he doing? Boy, you want to get a glimpse of something? Get a glimpse of this. You think Jesus is just sitting back and drinking iced tea, right? He's finished the work the Father ordained for him to do. He's kicked back right now. He's got a fan. He's actually got some servants fanning him. He's not doing anything but just sitting back and, and, you know, laying low right now, just taking it easy. No way! Are you kidding me? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. He is our mediator, our surety, our advocate, and now he is our intercessor. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died ye, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. What's he doing? Kicking back? No. Who also maketh intercession for us. Are you ready for this? Here we are in this life. Here we are facing all the dangers, all the perils, all the difficulties, all the situations we encounter. And there's Jesus. He is praying. He says, Father, I know they're not made perfect yet. But you know what? I'm praying that their faith fail not. 
I'm going to intercede on their behalf. I know they'll suffer persecution. I know they're going to come against trials and tribulations. I know that Satan's going to unleash attack over their lives. But I am making intercession for them. I'm standing in the gap for them. I am praying on their behalf that they make it all the way to be with us in glory. That's what he's doing. And look at verse 25 of chapter 7, book of Hebrews. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. To the uttermost forevermore. Beloved, I want you to see this because this will give you what you need to endure unto the end. What is it that you're thinking you can't do? What is it that you're thinking you can't be free from? What is it thinking that you're thinking in your mind that says, well, I don't really know if I'm going to be able to make it all the way with God in this life. I'm telling you, He's able to save you to the uttermost. He is able because why? Look at what it says. Wherefore, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by Him. Have you come to God by Him? Everybody in this room come to God by Him? Have you come to God by Him? He is able to save you to the uttermost. Why? Seeing He ever liveth to make intercession. For who? For those that come to God by Him. He prayed for Peter that his faith fail not. He's praying for us. Every one of us. Amen. He ever liveth to intercede on our behalf. Oh, I thank God I have an intercessor before the Father. Who knows my state? Who knows my frailties? Who knows my weaknesses? Who knows my imperfections? But He's praying for me. Amen. I'll tell you what, when you know that He's praying for you, you don't need anybody else on that other side. That's why no one else is qualified on the other side. And then finally, I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 4. Oh, I pray you got your shot and clothes ready right now. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, verse 14 rather. He's our mediator. He's our surety. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He is our high priest. In verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest. I want you to notice this verse. Let's read the whole verse. That is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession or confession. See, that's faith. But faith is not empty. It is not without a foundation. It does not act on its own apart from understanding and spiritual laws. The reason why you and I can hold fast our profession of faith in the Word of God is because we have a faithful high priest who has passed into the heavens. He is a great high priest. His name is Jesus. Now listen carefully. As a matter of fact, hold your place there. I'll have to read it to you. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. I want you to know he's already done it. I want you to know his ministry is forever. I want you to know his sacrifice of his blood was enough to satisfy the high court of heaven. And once it was offered, eternal redemption was obtained for every single one of us. There's nothing we can do about that. He has already done it as our high priest there before the Father in heaven. Back then, if they didn't have the high priest do it, then they had a broken relationship with God. But because of the high priest entering in, their sins were covered for a season. And thank God they could have some kind of a relationship and fellowship with God. But now, he is saying to us, 
Then, back then, under that Mosaic law, with the Levitical priesthood and the high priesthood and all that, they could not have remission of sins. They can only cover up their sins. And the, the worshipers could never be made perfect in the sight of God. They could never be sanctified or set apart as God wanted them to be because they were still bound by spiritual death. But he entered in with his own blood. He offered up his eternal sacrifice. Look at verse 22. And almost all things are by law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but in the heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. Everybody say, for me. Say it again, for me. He appeared there for me. You ready? I would have had to appear there for myself and been damned for eternity in the lake of fire. But thank God somebody else appeared before God for me so I don't have to appear for myself. He took that place for me. His blood was shed for me. I don't have to do it. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entered into the holy place ever every year with the blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Listen, the law of sin and death has been put away because of the law of life in Christ Jesus. It's appointed man to die but once. But after this the judgment, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And of them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And that law and priesthood could never sanctify man. But look at chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those things sacrifices which were offered year by year continually make the comers of the worshipers perfect. They could not do that. But look at verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified did you get that you're set apart from the law of sin and death you're set apart from Adam's high treason you're set apart from all that it represents and all that it brings into, into human life you're set apart from the curse that that blood of Jesus has sanctified or set us apart we overcome by the blood of the lamb that's what it means now go back to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession or confession of faith. Because you have a great high priest who is in the heaven, you keep on saying, I'm washed in the blood, I'm delivered from the power of sin, I've been made perfect in the sight of God, holy and without spot and without blemish, glory to God before the presence of my God, I am pure and holy. You keep saying, because of my high priest who's at the Father's right hand, my sin problem's been dealt with, sickness been dealt with, mental anguish been dealt with, problems in life been dealt with, thank God I'm an overcomer in this life, it's all been dealt with because of Jesus, and you keep saying it. Look at the next verse. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore, right. therefore, because he's touched with the feeling of your weaknesses and infirmities, because he's such a perfect high priest, who knows what you've been through, who suffered on that cross, experiencing everything that man has ever encountered in life or ever will, and he's right there for you, what's he say to do? Come boldly 
with confidence, assurance, with authority. How? Based on your merits? Based on what I've done? Based on my life? No, not at all. Though because you have a high priest at the Father's right hand whose ministry is eternal, who will never leave the Father's side, whose blood is there on the mercy seat, who has cleansed all the utensils of worship, who has made a statement of declaration that the Son of Man has set humanity free and everybody is free indeed by the blood of the Lamb. He said, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain the mercy of God and find power, the grace of God, the operational working of God's power in your life, in your time of need. Do you need forgiveness? It's there. You need healing? It's there. You need help? It's there. You need victory? It's there. You need provision? It is there. What do you need? It is there at the throne of grace. And your high priest represents you. And he'll never forsake you. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained of men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are, with, that are out of, his, of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron." So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God, a high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. That's his position right now. That's his ongoing, unending position right now at the Father's right hand. And what gives us now the fourth law of faith? What gives us confidence to appropriate all this by faith? See, here people are thinking, I've got to do it. No, you don't. He already did it. Our confession of faith is based on what he did. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the completeness of our redemption, and the word of our testimony. Start saying it. I have a mediator. I have a surety. I have an advocate. I have an intercessor. I have a high priest. Hallelujah. And he's there in the heavens forever representing us to the Father. Amen. So hold fast your confession. He's touched with the feeling of your infirmities and He'll meet your needs. Amen. Let's all stand before the Lord. Thank you for listening to our legacy teachings. We pray today's message has a profound impact upon your life and your ministry. I want you to know that God loves you, has a great plan for your life. But if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Just pray this simple prayer right after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I come to you just as I am, and I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, come into my heart now. I receive you and accept you as my personal Savior and Lord. If you prayed that prayer with me, you're a child of God right now, and I encourage you to get into a good Bible-based church where you can learn to grow in your Christian faith and experience. God bless.